generosity flows from an understanding of God's grace. That's the theological center of everything we're going to be talking about in these four weeks. Generosity flows from an understanding of God's grace. We are generous because he is generous to us. We live generously because he was first to be generous to us. Matthew 10:8 says, freely you have received, freely give. One version says, you have been treated generously, so live generously. Friends, if you understand what happened in Jesus, then you understand that God was first generous to us. That's what grace is. So if we follow Jesus, we give of ourselves, of our resources, we become giving more generous people because we have experienced, because we appreciate further how Jesus' life and death and resurrection are expressions of God's generosity, of his generous love for us. So we seek to be generous with our time, with our money, with our resources, everything. And today, today, we're going to talk about a way which God calls us to be generous <laughs> that uh, is tough. This is a context within which being generous is a little harder than just sort of writing a check and saying, I'm being generous. Generosity in our relationships might be the hardest way to be generous. It might be the hardest way to reflect the generosity that we've received from Jesus. Generosity in how we treat people might be the hardest way. It's hard to be relationally generous <laughs> because, newsflash, people are mean. I know that's not news to you, but get a few years on you. Get a few years on you, and chances are quite good that you will have experienced some real personal hurt, real personal hurt at the hands of people you loved and trusted. In fact, for average Joe Schmo experience in life, you're experiencing personal hurt from people you love and trust, not just those you loved and trusted. So what do we do? How do we respond? We shrink back generally. We shrink back and we don't trust and we refuse to engage further in personal relationships. And what most of us do, I know I do this, what most of us do in the process is we begin to, to gain this mental tally of wrongs against us. Most of us, frankly, are experts at recalling all the ways we've been wronged by all the people who have wronged us and all the situations in which we've been wronged. We can tell you the name, the date, the time, the person, remember their face, remember the expression, remember what they said. We are like serious experts at recall of all those kinds of things. But listen, seriously, when it comes to the particularities of those things in my life, I am amazingly good at recalling them. But listen, I can hardly tell you what I had for breakfast yesterday. What does that tell you? What did you do yesterday? I, uh, uh, what did I do yesterday? Where am I? I mean, that's, but you ask somebody, you, you ask somebody, what are all the ways you've been hurt? <laughs> How long do you have? 
We have amazingly good recall at the list of wrongs against us. And when we sit there in that place with that mental list of wrongs against us and it simmers with us and it festers in us, when we do that, when we dwell on all of those wrongs against us, this is where we hit Luke 17 today. When that happens, we are in danger. We are in danger. And the danger Jesus talks about in Luke 17 isn't the danger of something you might do, though obviously that's dangerous, but it might be the most dangerous thing is that what happens to your heart when you dwell on those wrongs against you. That is why Jesus begins this passage with saying, pay attention, watch yourselves. When we dwell on those offenses against us, we are in danger of becoming this sort of relational Scrooge who will not forgive. We become this sort of relational Scrooge that has a real hard time forgiving people. We end up vilifying the other person. We begin to root for their demise. Often we we secretly, when we bring out that mental tally of wrongs against us, we secretly celebrate when someone else who has hurt us has something bad that happens to them. And when you're a relational Scrooge, what happens is you always reduce the other person to what they've done. They stop being a human being like you are, a complex human being with a whole large set of circumstances, and you automatically vilify the other person, and you reduce them to what they've done. So when somebody does something to you, you say, that person over there, that person, you know that person, that person's a liar. That's who they are. That's what they do. All they do is lie. They're a liar. <laughs> But then, but then if you and I, we go off and we do the same thing, we begin to say things like, well, <laughs> yes, that was wrong, but it's complicated. And we explain it away with our circumstances, vilifying the other person, finding ways to make sure we're always superior. We believe in forgiveness as a philosophy. But frankly, for many of us, if, if, if we scratch just below the surface, I think most of us would find that we have an elaborate set of reasons why, in our case, forgiveness doesn't always work like it's supposed to. But friends, what Jesus tells us is that forgiveness is the currency of relational generosity. Forgiveness is the everyday Relational generosity currency. It's the everyday relational generosity currency that understands the grace of God. That understands what we've been given. And when you fail to forgive, as Jesus tells us here in Luke 17, 3 to 10, when you fail to forgive... You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten that you are a disciple. You've forgotten your role. You have forgotten that you follow a God who is first generous to you. You have failed to understand the heart of a God who is gracious. We're going to look at this in two sections today, in two places here. Verses 3 through 6, we're going to ask the questions of how much and how often. How much and how often we're going, to, we're going to talk about how Jesus asks us to forgive completely and to forgive constantly. And then our role in that, in 7 through 10, is forgiven servant. Our role is as a forgiven servant. So the first two questions we answer from the text today about forgiveness are how much 
and how often? What are the extent and the frequency of our responsibility to forgive? Jump in at verse 3. It says this, Pay attention to yourselves. These are the words of Jesus to his disciples. Watch yourselves. They had been out doing ministry, and people were rejecting some of their work. And so he said, when they do that, you watch yourselves. You watch yourselves. Pay attention to yourself, he's saying. Watch out for what happens to your heart if you don't forgive. He says that's the actual, that's the actual most important part of the matter here, not what they did to you. It's not, it's not the other person you should be worried about. It's yourself when you are sinned against. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If a believer, he's talking about the context of believers especially here. If a believer sins against you, confront him or her about the sin. And if he repents, forgive him. So pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him, confront him. And if he repents, if he turns and tries to make amends and, and behave differently, then forgive him. Now, now press pause here. We're going to spend some time here on verse 3. When it says, if your brother sins, rebuke him... <laughs> That doesn't mean we have a blank check, you know, to be a jerk. That's just not what it means. Some believers hear this kind of terminology about rebuke and they go, yay. <laughs> you know, permission to go be sort of a, you know, graceless tightwad with people. That's, that's not what this is. <laughs> that's not what rebuking or confronting is about. Uh, that's not what it's for. And Christian confrontation is always about the reconciliation of the relationship. It's about healing the damage of the relationship. It's not about meeting out justice. We'll get there more later on. We know this for a couple of reasons. The first is this. Look at what it says here. Look at what Jesus says in verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, if he admits being in the wrong and seeks to correct the behavior, then forgive him. Seek to heal the damage in the relationship. The problem is that we confront with the purpose of bringing about justice for ourselves. Usually because we're acting like our own personal uh, lawyer, judge, and jury, you know, because we're not really trying to heal the damage. We're trying to get even, and, and even that score of that mental tally that we have. And so we read in our own motives into that work, into that re word rebuke. We, we read our own sort of uh, justice motives in there. That's why Jesus warns us here about paying attention to yourself. That's why he warns you about the, about the consequences of failing to forgive like he has forgiven us. You have to forgive, in fact. You have to forgive if you're going to heal the damage in the relationship. Listen. You have to forgive before you even begin attempting to heal the damage in the relationship, which is the second reason we know that Christian confrontation is always about reconciliation. Some of us are reading along here in, uh, in verse 3. Some of us are reading along here in verse 3 and we're thinking, okay, if my brother sins, this is what it says, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. <laughs> but then we add this other part at the end like, but if he doesn't repent... Then my hands are clean. That's like saying, yes, I don't actually have to forgive. That, that's, that's not the attitude of someone who's been forgiven by God. That's the kind of stuff that a judgmental Pharisee says. Read the larger context in Luke here. I'm not just making this up. That's like a kind of stuff a judgmental Pharisee says. So don't twist Jesus' words here into a justification uh, to hate the offender. That's not how this actually works. 
Listen, if you're going to confront, if you're going to confront someone about how they've sinned against you, then you have to make sure you've already forgiven before you get there. You have to learn to forgive even if they don't repent. You see, the word Jesus uses here for forgive is a special word. He could have used a few different words for the word forgiven here. But he chooses a word out of a financial out of a financial context. And the word forgive here means that the one doing the forgiving takes the initiative to release the offender from the debt that is owed. Ah. That's wow. Forgiveness involves taking the initiative to release the offender from their obligation to owe you for what they did. Which means you must inwardly give up your right for repayment and pay the debt yourself. It's about absorbing the cost. Think about the transaction from perfect God to imperfect you and me. It took initiative to absorb the cost. Now, I know that as soon as we hear Jesus tell us about how the extent of forgiveness is complete, as soon as we hear Jesus' words about forgiving the other person of the relational guilt, we instantly say, wait a second, Jesus, I'm not the one in the wrong here. The other person's the one who is in the offensive against me. Why is it my job to watch out for the other person? Why, why am I the one who has to take the initiative to forgive the other person? Why is it my job to absorb the cost? To take the initiative? This is why Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. When you are sinned against, he's saying, make sure you forgive. It's your duty to forgive. The danger for your heart, the real danger, is not even what happened to you. The real danger is what it turns you into if you don't forgive. You will become a hard and exacting, pharisaical, impossible to have a relationship, impossible to please, increasingly not like Jesus, judge and jury, that no one wants to be around and doesn't look like the way Jesus treated you. For many of us, perhaps the failure to forgive is one of the greatest dangers in our life for what it will do to your heart. (laughs) But it gets even worse than that. (laughs) This isn't just about the extent of forgiveness. This is about how often to forgive. I mean, merely understanding the extent of forgiveness that, that we're being asked to here is to, asked to display here is hard enough. But, but when you hear what Jesus says next about the frequency of forgiveness, it, it seems impossible. Look at, at verse 4 here. He's still talking to the uh, disciples here. He says, And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, if somebody wrongs you, admits their fault to you uh, for something, you know, once, 
you know, you, you may go ahead and extend forgiveness, uh, but if something happens twice, you begin to feel like, <laughs> not this time, buddy, once bitten, twice shy. We say all those kinds of wisdom sayings, you know. Uh, if somebody begins to wrong you, though, three times, four times, seven times, dozens of times, dozens of times, you begin to stay away from that person. But look what Jesus says. If someone sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, if you're reading verse 4 here and you think, all right, now we're talking. When somebody gets to time number eight, then I can bring down the hammer. (laughs) Again, again. Don't read your definition of rebuke into this. The goal is not your justice. The goal is reconciliation with God for the other person, just like the goal was in him coming to know you. You know, we we read this and we go, yes, number eight, finally let justice roll down like mighty waters. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He chooses the number seven because it's the Jewish number for for completeness, for fullness, for something being finished. And that goes all the way back to Genesis because when God was creating the heavens and the earth, he was completed, done. He was finished on day seven. So when he gets to this place here and he says, he says, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, if someone sins against you as completely in a day as possible, even when you're like totally at the end of your forgiveness rope, instead of taking that rope and pulling it inward and bringing that person back to your mental tally of wrongs done against you so that you can get repayment, so that you can make sure that you seek out justice, so that you can make sure that your wrath is avenged, keep actually going the Jesus direction of letting the rope out further. Because that's what the cross looked like. Not this. Not this. Christians who are constantly pulling the rope inward for themselves don't understand the generosity and the grace that was extended to them personally. Think about, think about the sad irony of that. When you've experienced limitless grace, and yet you walk around being in the hard and exacting justifier of all around, taking your mental tally out as much as possible, bringing that rope inward. Jesus says, pay attention. Lest you turn into a relational Scrooge. You see, friends, your anger, your anger will always tell you it's something else. It won't call it anger. It will call itself things like uh, justice. You will say things like, I'm just seeking the truth. But friends, if you hold on to that anger, it will corrupt you. It will twist you into something perverted. It will twist you into something that messes up the gospel and pulls the rope inward constantly when that's not what we're called to do because that's not what Jesus did. I'm going to tell you about four words that all come from the same root. Four English words that all come from the same root. 
And looking at where they come from and their meaning helps us understand what, what happens when anger and bitterness takes root in us. The four words that we're going to put on screen for you here are wrath, wreath, writhe, and wraith. Wrath, wreath, writhe, and wraith. You probably know at least two of these, maybe three. Uh, the real word nerds among us might know four. Uh, I knew the fourth was a word, <laughs> but I didn't know what it means. So those of you who know, I sort of, you know, kept a copy of the dictionary in my back pocket in high school. Um, even I had to look up the meaning of the word wraith. So you probably know a couple of these, maybe three of these. The first one just means anger, right? Wrath is, is anger. As it turns out, as we'll see through a couple of the other words, it means a little more than just generalized anger because it's more than just that. We'll come back to that in a minute. What's a wreath? A wreath is a circular shape usually of a twisting. That's the important part there. That's the root. A twisting of leaves or twigs into a certain kind of circular shape. The word writhe means to twist or to contort. If you're, if you're writhing in pain, you're, you're twisting and contorting in pain. And now we begin to see a little more clearly what that first word what that first word wrath means. It's not just a generalized anger. It's an anger that twists and contorts. And what about that last word, wraith? What does the word wraith mean? Wraith is an old word uh, for a ghost that haunted a, a certain area. But it's not just any old ghost. It's a particular kind of ghost who had been wronged in life, who was forever angry about it. And so a wraith is a ghost who is restless for eternity. And they relive their past by haunting a certain area because they have never been able to forgive. Their future is completely, completely controlled by the past. Friends, if, if forgiveness is hard for you, maybe you should pay attention when we fail to forgive, we become a wraith. We become a relational Scrooge who is less joyful, less generous, who is uh, inordinately afraid of trusting other people. And if you're not careful, you'll become a hard and exacting person. In fact, Jesus says in a couple places, Bitterness, when it takes root, has turned some of us into skilled assassins. Internally, we are murdering people. That's, that's why you have to pay attention. Because at that point, at that point, you've begun to act like the God of the universe, who alone can judge that kind of thing. There's a great theologian. His name is Miroslav Volf, who's written a great book called Exclusion and Embrace. This is what he says about when forgiveness doesn't work, about the failure to forgive. He says, forgiveness flounders. It doesn't work because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as at the same time as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. That person I'm vilifying, that person isn't even a human being. 
And suddenly at the same time, I am not even a sinner. So Jesus says, watch yourselves. Make sure you forgive, lest you become bitter. Forgive completely and forgive constantly. Now this is a tall order. (laughs) That's why in verse 5, the disciples respond like this. It says this, verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Give me more faith, Lord, because, because you're asking something. I'm like, I understand it intellectually. I get what you're calling for, but I, I can't get there easily, Lord. Give me more trust to let go of the debt that I feel like I am owed. Give me more faith to live in this way that you're calling me to live. That's what it means to, to have faith and trust in Christ. It's not just this one time, come up, get dunked, yay, I know Jesus. It's an every day, every motivation of the heart, turning over to the Lordship of Jesus. So as you continue to give yourself to that faith, you will continue to become a more forgiving person. If you're becoming less forgiving with time, that's called distrust of Jesus. You're bringing the rope in. You're bringing the rope in. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 6. He says, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed... Mustard seeds were well known as one of the smallest seeds in Palestine. You could say to this mulberry tree, he's probably pointing to it there, they were well known to grow up to 35 feet tall, uh, live for 600 years, a very deep and complex root system. So he's saying here, if you had a smidge of faith, you could say to this deeply rooted tree right here, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. (laughs) Notice what Jesus says here. If you had faith like this, you could do this. If you're just a, a smidge, if you had a little bit of faith, you could do what seems impossible. And, and, and calling this tree up into the sea, that's no big deal compared to the miracle of you forgiving like Jesus. He's saying you're still living from this old way of thinking. You're still living from this human wisdom. These ways of making relationships we think, happen. He's saying you're still beholden to a pattern of of relationships that has to vilify the other person and that has to seek justice for yourself all the time. He's calling us to leave behind that faithless way of doing relationships. He's saying that's not how it works when you follow me. When you follow me, you extend to others the kind of generosity you've received from me, he says, that's the real miracle. That's the real miracle. Not so much a tree jumping into the sea that seems impossible. And this may seem hard. This may seem hard. But we have to get to the point, friends, where forgiveness is an everyday relational currency for us. Forgiveness is job one for the believer. If you don't get this at some level, you don't get following Jesus. It's not our role to mete out the justice. It is our role to forgive. We are forgiven servants. Listen to how Jesus says this in the coming verses, 7 through 10 here. He makes this point with the parable. He says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. 
Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now what Jesus is saying here is this. Picture yourself as a, as a small landowner in ancient Palestine. And you employ a single servant who works for you in return for food and shelter. That was a pretty common business arrangement in the day, especially for somebody who, and the implication is given the context that this might be the case here, especially for somebody who has a debt they couldn't pay. So they would, they would go into service for the person they owed the debt to, to work it off instead of the money. So that's the relationship here. You send that servant out to the field to plow or to keep sheep for the day. And what do you do when the day's work is over? (laughs) Do you run out to meet the servant and invite him to this big dinner that you've prepared and say, hey, come on in. You must be starving. I've prepared everything for you. I've gone ahead and done this. Just sit down. I'll take care of everything. No, that's actually not how it worked. That's not the roles. If that were the case, and here's Jesus' point, this is the key. If that were the case, that would be a reversal of the roles. Instead, what would happen? Instead, what would happen is the servant would come in from the fields, prepare the meal, and serve the food to the master. So Jesus says, verse 10, so you also. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, and this is who we are, we are unworthy servants. To say we are worthy servants of the grace of God is to reverse the roles. It's to reverse the servant-master relationship. When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Friends, a follower of Jesus accepts the role of a forgiven servant who knows that God alone can bring about the justice we seek for our hurts and pains. (laughs) At an empirical human level, you can't possibly know what has gone on in somebody else's lives and what they deserve and what they don't. Only a perfect human could make justice for us in Jesus and only a perfect being in God can be the judge who knows that. It's like Jesus is saying here, your job, the best you could do, the most important thing you're called to do isn't a menial. This is important stuff. Your job, he says, is to dispense forgiveness as you've been forgiven. And when you don't, You're a servant acting like the master. When you fail to forgive, when you fail to forgive, you are acting not just like the other person owes you, but you're acting like God owes you. When you refuse to forgive, you're forgetting who you really are. Listen, friends, the master, the master gave you everything. You owe the master everything and he owes you nothing. And when we turn to someone else 
and we keep from them the forgiveness that you've received, that we've received from God, it shows you don't understand the nature of the gift that's been given to you. How how do you fix that? How do you fix that dissonance? How do you get the roles in the right place? The only way you can get over that dissonance of being a servant but acting like a king is to see and to appreciate the king who acted like a servant. You'll never be able to forgive unless you love and appreciate the king who acted like a servant so that your sins could be forgiven. So friends, act like a servant, a forgiven servant who understands your duty is to forgive as you've been forgiven. Instead of, instead of rooting against the other person, pray for that person. Begin to see them from the heart of God with, with His eyes. Instead of assuming the worst, shift your thinking and practice assuming the best. That's understanding your role. Instead of excluding them from humanity, include them in your heart. As a human being made in the image of God, with the same kinds of struggles you know. This other person, this other person, is a human made in the image of God. God loves them just as much as He loves you. And He did not send His Son just to die for you. He sent Him to die for the sins of all people. Instead of always assuming your own circumstances are the exception. And assuming you're always in the right. Get some perspective. Humble yourself before God, the God who is holy. None of us is God's gift to humanity. Only Jesus sits in that place. When we understand that our role is to forgive, when we understand that our role is to forgive, we are trusting God to be our defender. We're giving up our need to defend ourselves. That's the kind of faith disciples of Christ demonstrate. And friends, when we act like that, when the church acts like that, when servants forgive as they've been forgiven, more joy is experienced. More generosity flows from person to person. More people come to know and to experience the love of God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for acting like we know what we don't. Please continue to correct us and to shape us into men and women who humbly assume a posture of forgiven servant so that in our relationships with one another from day to day, the generous grace that you've extended to us in the person of Jesus 
would be real in our lives, would be practiced, practiced in our relationships, would be the, the daily currency of the ways in which we extend to one another grace. Forgive us, Lord, for meeting out justice on our own. Help us, Lord, to continue to heal the hurts of the past through the cross as you've demonstrated it for us. Continue to show us, Lord, what it means, what it means to forgive. We ask for this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.